As society seems to crumble around us, we make our way back to the foothills of the mountains. Rifles in hand, we set up our camp, and the light of our campfire filters up through the bases of the pine trees, and above the canopy of needles, we can see the cold stars in the dark night sky. We sit around the campfire, we laugh, we talk, we remember the issues of the past, and we look out beyond the pines into the dark veil of gray mist, and we see the movement, the shadows slumping around the ground, peering out through around the trees. The wild calls for us. Tonight, we talk. Around this campfire, thank you for joining me in the camp of the beyond. This is The Marauder Rises. How's it going, guys? Tonight, I thought we'd talk about something a little bit more philosophical, something that doesn't necessarily have to do with, um, you know, creepy, crawly, scary boys, um, <clears throat> tyrannical government weaponry or anything like that. This is something completely different. So tonight, what I'd like to talk about is virtue. It's something that our society as a whole lacks a lot of. And honestly, it's if you're a man who wishes to want to live in a free society or a woman, but honestly, right now I'm just talking to men primarily. If you're a man wanting to live in a free society, it is your duty to pursue virtue and it is your duty to um, try to evoke that same pursuit in other people. So um, I'm going to get into what is virtue and the so I've, I've kind of outlined a process that I'd approach it by tonight. Um, so the process is going to be uh, the way we look at virtue is going to be um, determining what is virtue. And part of this is going to be looking at whether it's real or not. And that might be a little surprising to you because you're thinking like, well, yeah, virtue might be like an abstract concept, but of course it's real. Well, it, depending on what worldview you adhere to, you might take that entirely for granted. So your, world, your worldview, you might think it's real, but the way that you approach this you know, life in the world, uh, your personal life philosophy, might actually prevent you from pursuing virtue as if it were a very real thing. So... Um, First off is identification. This is looking at, and it's going to be like the identification thing is going to be um, like several parts that we'll get into first and then later on, and you'll understand why. But so identification, which is in part determining if it's real and determining what virtue is, it specifically what it is. <coughs> then, um, so there's identification, there's um, pursuit, and so also this is going to be a portion of uh, like a, an understanding, a worldview. It's going to be very worldview dependent. All of this is going to be worldview dependent. And if it's, it presumes that you're consistent with your pre-existing worldviews. And if you're not pre-existing with your, pre, your or I'm sorry, if you're not consistent with your pre-existing worldviews and you want to obtain virtue, well, then the implication here is going to be you need to change your worldviews. Um, so we'll get more into that later. So pursuit 
is meaning um, obviously you're trying to obtain, you're trying to attain virtue, right? You're trying to become um, a more virtuous person. And whether you can obtain that or not, or whether you uh, can pursue that or not is going to depend a lot on your worldview. So we'll go over that. Then that's after pursuit is whether it is obtainable or not to become more virtuous. And so I guess a a part of this is just going to be, you know, obtaining. It's so it's not there's a difference between pursuit and obtaining. Pursuit is trying to obtain it and obtaining it is, well, it's the success in the pursuit. And there is a legitimate difference between the two in this process. Um, I think you'll see why we'll get into it more later on. Um, but, uh, so, so we, we get this obtaining the obtaining attaining of virtue. And from then on, after that, we re-examine it and we see like how this changes, how we look at virtue and, it's going to change primarily the realization that it's a continuous process throughout your entire life and it's something that you can't deny and that you must pursue and um, you must get society as a whole to pursue it because the pursuit of virtue, the pursuit of righteousness is what maintains society. It's what keeps society healthy and peaceful and prosperous and individuals acting of their own volition um, based on faith, based on a righteous moral worldview, is what's going to sustain humanity and individual human societies in the collective. So um, basically garbage in, garbage out. You're not going to be able to keep this, uh, keep a prosperous society held together if the vast majority of the individual components being people of society are not actively looking to become better members, contributing members. Remember, we talked about how citizenship inevitably boils down to your how you're contribu- contributing to a free society. And the free society, um, it's going to really be only attainable, you know, uh, if people are actively seeking to do good. And so some people will say, well, that's, you know, that's never going to happen. You're never going to get a situation in which every single person is, um, is actively seeking virtue. And obviously that's true. You're always going to have instances of people who act out and do harm. The fact that barring all the criminal activity in the nation, barring all the, the rape, murder, um, uh, rape, murder, robbery, whatever you have it uh, in this nation, the fact that some people rule over other people um, that seek to have power over other people is just an instance that people go out of self, self-interest. It's not, all, it's not sacrificial for the pursuit of good always. Um, and usually it's not. But the fact of the matter is, is that you as a man are called to do better. And you're called to get other people to do better. And this is the, the existence of evil in our society should not lead you to give up on it. It should lead you to pursue it more. So you should use the observations that things are wrong in our society, not as a means of saying, well, it's impossible to do, but as a means of saying, I should try harder. Okay. Um, so we're going to get into this. So 
Uh, right now I've got a little bit of source material here. I've got the book Christian Ethics and Essential Guide um, by Robin W. Lovin. And so um, this is going to be helpful to us early on in defining virtue <coughs> and later on um, in the pursuit and um, you know, obtaining, attaining virtue. So we're going to talk about first, what is a virtue? So virtues, according to this book, um, it's going to talk about this, this, the author's perspective at first, Levin's perspective. And then it's going to talk about like a more of an objective, what you and I would call an objective or maybe a, uh, critically acclaimed version, uh, coming from Aristotle. So Aristotle was huge in developing the concept of virtue. So According to this book, we're opening up to page 63. What is virtue? Virtues are the admirable qualities uh, of persons that emerge from an examination of their narratives and that, sh- and that shape their moral lives. A system of thinking about ethics that centers on virtues is sometimes called eretiology uh, or eretiological ethics. The technical terminology here derives from erit, the word that Aristotle and other Greek philosophers used for virtue. Just as deontological and theological uh, ethics take their names from the words, uh, Greek words duty and goal. When we start thinking about virtues in the abstract, we are apt to th- start building lists of the qualities we admire in others or that we would like to see in ourselves. But it is important to not to lose the connection between these admirable characteristics of persons and the narratives uh, through which we learn to identify them. We sometimes think of a list of virtues rather than rather like a, a list of moral rules. Honesty, courage, and kindness become shorthand for don't lie, don't run away from the problem, be attentive to the needs of others, and so on. We're still vir- virtue in the way we often use the term becomes reduced to following the rules uh, of the appropriate sexual conduct so that someone, usually female, has her virtue as long as she follows these rules and loses it when she breaks them. When we limit concepts in these ways, the essential connection between a virtue and the characteristic of a person is lost. So I'd go on to, and this is my speaking, uh, I think they were trying to make a point about the female being reduced to the concept of her virtue. Um, and the virtue itself, the, the woman, the way her behavior is re- reduced to the concept of a virtue uh, is wrong here because the virtue is not this uh, a moral valuation, right? It's, it is just a rule. It's a rule that's been established, not necessarily dependent on a moral valuation. The, the key to a virtue is that it is in itself a personification of a moral, a moral valuation, okay? So, obviously, uh, dressing in a way that is scandalous like that or, or something along those lines I think that they were trying to get at, we could go, call that not virtuous. But the reason that it's not virtuous is not necessarily because the rules say not to. The reason that it's not virtuous is because it's not becoming of moral valuation, right? And so then we get the, into this argument of, well, what is morality? What is moral valuation? So we're going to continue on a little bit here, and I'll, I'll circle back to that question. So what is a virtue? How can we speak about virtue in ways that retain the richness and variety of our narratives while still helping us to come to a systematic understanding of the moral life? An early answer that is still useful was supplied by Aristotle's uh, 
and Nicomachean ethics, a virtue, Aristotle said, is a pattern of behavior learned through practice, so that it becomes part of the way a person normally tends to act. Having the virtue of kindness does not uh, does not mean knowing intellectually how a kind person would act. The teacher of ethics has to have that intellectual knowledge so that he can identify kind people and kind actions and point them out to his pupils. But people who have the virtue of kindness are people who have actually done acts of kindness to the point that they regularly do the th- kind of thing. Aristotle thought about this as being very much like other kinds of practical learning. Indeed, the Greek word for virtue, erit, can be used for any sort of excellence, as the following passage suggests. And here's a excerpt. Um, I believe this is from an Aristotle, one of Aristotle's works. The same causes and the same means that produce any excellence or virtue can also destroy it. And this is also true of every art. It is by playing the harp that men become good and bad harpists. Um, the the same holds true of the virtues. In our transactions with other men, it is by our action that some become just and others unjust. And it is by acting in the face of danger and by developing the habit of feeling fear or confidence that some become brave men and others cowards. Um, so, obviously... This is going more into the idea that <clears throat> the concept of virtue is not this concrete thing that, and by concrete, I mean th- like what we were talking about rules earlier. It's not enough to just know it on an intellectual basis. Virtue is something that you become. It's an embodiment. And this is more or less what we talk about when we say moral valuation, right? So... The, up to a point, your intellect is going to help you, uh, whether you can use rational thought or not, is going to help you to identify morality. Uh, but the issue is, is that just knowing it is not going to be enough. You're still, if you're a bad person, <laughs> you're still going to be a bad person, even if you know the difference between right or wrong. And why is that? Well, you know, think about a demon. Does a demon realize that there's a difference between right right and wrong? Yes. Can a demon point out an example of right? Yes. Can a demon define on an intellectual level what is right? You know, what is morally right? Yes. Does that mean they're going to do it? No. Right? So, um, the becoming virtuous is not necessarily just something that you can achieve but just by knowing it's something that must be practiced and developed into habit so now we're going to get into that conversation about well what is world your worldview say about this well uh there's going to be some challenges here now obviously i was reading from a christian book earlier and um but they got into they talked about a guy named aristotle right aristotle um, he was a theist. So what that means is that he, he, he actually, from what I understand, he was a monotheist in the time of Greeks, which was f- somewhat rare. Um, he, using rational thought, derived the concept that there is one God. And using various other rational, what he would call logical proofs, um, and later on, um, Thomas Aquinas would also use logical proofs in his work, uh, Aristotle 
derived the fact to him that there must be a God and that there's probably only, probably only one God. So Thomas Aquinas would later on, whenever he was writing his Summa Theologica, he would, uh, for the most part, prove that there is the exist in the, ex- the existence of a God. So using using logical proofs. Now that's obviously not scientific scientific empirical truth. Um, that's it's a logical proof. It's something that you derive a a deduction from. It's the use of of logical deduction um, and inference in order to come to a conclusion. It's it's entirely rational. It's not empirical. You don't undergo a scientific method. You don't. Um, use observations of nature. Why? Why is that? Well, you technically can't use science to prove or disprove God because God, by definition, or gods, by definition, um, are supernatural entities. Science, particularly, is the study of nature. It cannot remove itself from from studying nature to studying something else. You cannot detect supernatural activity with the use of science. I know you guys might have seen a lot of ghost shows um and I don't know I don't know what the merit is to any of that, but the reality is is that unless there is a natural key, a natural connection uh between a supernatural entity and the natural world, then science cannot detect supernatural things because Science only observes natural phenomenon. Okay, so you must use rational and logical um, deduction and inference, um, you know, proofs, if if you'd like to call them that, like Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas would, whenever you're approaching the idea of proving or disproving the existence of God or gods. Okay, getting farther into this. If you personally reject the idea of a god, you're going to find it incredibly hard uh, to be able to explain to yourself the existence of virtue. Because ultimately, without the existence, without the existence of a god, morality is fluid. Um, morality being the understanding between right and wrong. What is right to do, what is right to act? What is a right behavior, and what is a wrong behavior? Well, effectively, without God or gods, specifically though, just a just God, a God of justice, without one of those, um, and the the universe is ultimately just a random, colossal accident that effectively has no intrinsic meaning of in of itself and nothingness is just as valuable or just as likely as the existence of something then ultimately what you do or don't do is meaningless that's what we call nihilism or nihilism so and inevitably atheism logically concludes with nihilism now you might not like that. that. That's why a lot of atheists call themselves agnostic, because they don't like that simple truth. They want to have the idea of, uh, of uh, the existence of morality be open to them, and many many reasons because it's convenient. Um, it's it's inconvenient to say, at the very least, inconvenient. Uh, but in a lot of ways, it's like just 
against human nature to come outright and say there's no real difference between right and wrong. There are a few atheists who do that. Um, I would probably call them like having a social, no offense to them, but they probably do have a, some sort of sociological disorder because I think that um, the natural human sociology is to go against that, uh, which is kind of indicative of another proof, but we'll just, we'll just stay away from that right now. But um, going on with that, if you adhere, let's, let's say not even you're an atheist. Uh, and if you are an atheist, that's okay. You know, uh, I, I personally don't think it's okay. I don't want to know what's going to happen to you eventually. But for your purposes, do what you want. I hope that you continue listening and eventually you change your mind. Let's just put it that way. I want you to keep listening, okay? Um, but let's say uh, we're not going to take this hardline atheistic approach because it's kind of self-defeating. Let's just say... Mm, maybe you're a materialist. And what that means is maybe you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily haven't gone full, full blown atheist yet, but you do have this belief that science can prove or disprove the reality of anything. And effectively the, what exists is what is provable, right? What is provable through um, the scientific method, and so you're an, you're you're a materialist, or what what the uh, was it 1920s through 1940s, what they called a naturalist. So this is the view that only material, only physical matter and energy exists in the universe for our purposes, for the, for the purposes of uh, the human experience. Even though the human experience is a non-material, <laughs> it's a non-material abstract concept, but let's just say that this thing is logically consistent, right? So let's just say that materialism is logically consistent. Thoughts can somehow exist. Uh, what are they? Just like a random chemical reaction in your brain, right? Right. Consciousness just a random chemical reaction in your brain. Of course. Okay. Let's just pretend that's logically consistent to say such a thing. Um. So material and energy, you know, material matter and physical energy are the only things that exist in the universe. At the very least, they're only things that are pro that provably exist in the universe. Where does morality fit into there? How do you weigh morality on a scale? Can you look at it under a microscope? Can you determine what, um, what evil or righteousness are with a um, particle collider. <laughs> can you, <laughs> can you um, I don't know, I don't know what to, can you x-ray good and evil? No, probably not. Why? Because they're, well, in your view, if you're a materialist, you probably think that these are man-made concepts. Good and evil, they're man-made concepts that are probably derived by man for survivability purposes so that men aren't slaughtering each other. Denying the fact that they're an intrinsic part of human nature and human experience, and um, they often lead us to self-defeating positions, not just not like survivability. They often lead us to not survive, right? So... Uh, <laughs> Doing good often leads you to act against self-interest, whereas evolutionary traits would often lead you to only go after self-interest, right? So it just doesn't make sense. It's not consistent to think that way. Obviously, there's more to it. Uh, 
it very well might have been built into survivability instinctual mechanisms in the human race. But the reality is, is that it does not if, – if it has been incorporated into a survivability feature in the human race, it's not a very good one <laughs> because it, it constantly leads people to do the right thing but things that are often contrary to self-interest, right? So what I'm trying to say to you is, is that having this idea, this idealism of, of materialism or atheism or agnosticism, if you're trying to pursue virtue, it's just not going to work out for you. You're not going to be able to maintain logical consistency with your worldview. So... Um, if you have this this worldview, I recommend a few things. One, change your worldview, right? Start realizing that this view of atheism, that there's no supernatural component to the universe, that the only thing that exists is the things that you can detect with your senses, various various ideas like that. The matter and energy are the only things that exist in the universe. This is like a fundamentally fu uh, childish concept. A lot of grown adults have it. A lot of smart people have it. But it's fundamentally childish. And it's a very narrow human look at the universe. Get rid of that worldview. That's just my two cents. Then the other option, obviously, is going to be, well, if you can't, if you can't bring yourself to rejecting agnosticism, atheism, materialism, naturalism, or whatever, these, these worldly, worldly philosophies... If you can't bring yourself to rejecting these childish philosophies, well, then I guess just and but you still want to pursue virtue. You still want to become a more righteous person. I guess you're just going to have to bring yourself to being OK with being inconsistent in your worldviews. If you're unwilling to give up those worldviews, but still want to practice virtue and righteousness, um, these are two opposing philosophies. I hope you realize that. So you're going to have to realize that you're going to be inconsistent in both if you're trying to practice both. Now, am I saying that atheists and agnostics cannot be um, virtuous? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that at all. Obviously, atheists and agnostics and materialists and naturalists can be virtuous. But they're being, they're being virtuous despite their worldview, not because of it. Your worldview leads you to ultimately, even if you personally haven't rationally concluded this, the idea, when brought to its logical conclusion, rejects virtue. Okay? So, obviously, atheism isn't going to make you a virtuous person. If atheism rejects virtue on a fundamental level, it is not going to make you more virtuous. Okay, I, I don't know a simpler way to put it. If you're an atheist and you become more virtuous, it's, it ain't because of atheism. It ain't because of agnosticism. It's, it's not because of materialism. You became virtuous despite that. By the good grace of, of God and the other righteous things in this universe, nothing is as righteous as God. Um, everything pales in comparison to God. Righteousness... Uh, Righteousness without the faith in God is like filthy rags to God, right? Because the, what is valued there is relationship with him. A person who 
um, is atheist and then switches and, and has done bad in their life, but then realizes, holy crap, spirituality is real. It's a real component of life and I've been missing out on it. And whenever you engage yourself in the spirituality, it leads you the fruit of this spirituality will lead you to become a more virtuous person. And I can get in on that. I'm going to convert. I'm going to praise God. I'm going to believe in God. I'm going to worship God. I've been able to logically prove his existence with Thomas Aquinas's uh, rational proofs for God in Summa Theologica and, and uh, Aristotle's rational proofs for, for the existence of a, you know monotheism. I'm going to worship God. That is better. This person who has done bad their entire life, but has switched to a more rationally consistent worldview that allows them to pursue the worship and faith of God is better than living your entire life as an atheist and occasionally doing good despite your atheism. Your virtues that you do at the consequence of, of your other worldviews, not because of your other worldviews, but at the consequence, are like filthy rags. They're inconsistent. They're accidents. The virtues that you manage are accidents. Or if you intentionally do good, but you're you're you don't have faith, you don't you don't have you don't engage yourself in spirituality, it's something else acting in you. And it ain't it's not that portion of you that has bowed the knee, bowed you know, it, you're not godless, or I'm sorry, you're, yeah, you might be godless with a, a big G, right? You might be, have, have rejected God. A lot of, of atheists will personally say, yeah, I reject God. Uh, I rebel against God. So you might have rejected God, but you ain't godless. Your God is atheism. Your God, the thing that you put your belief in is lack of belief. You put your faith in that. And that is not going to lead you to be a better person. I hope you realize this. Okay. We're going to keep going. <laughs> so there is um, this, how this worldview fundamentally affects whether you can even admit that virtue exists or not. Right? So continuing on with this, is virtue pursuable? Well, yeah, we know that it is pursuable because, uh, but not through just intellectually knowing it, right? It is not enough to intellectually know what is what is right and wrong. Demons, the devil, they know what is right and wrong, but they choose to not do good. So although they, on an intellectual scale, they know what is right and wrong, they are not virtuous simply by knowing it. It comes with practice, int intentional practice. And so um, this... Uh, Pursuable and obtainable um, steps, they are also going to be impacted by your worldview. And so I'll get into this in just a minute. But effectively, this is also going to be determined by your faith in God, not just by whether you do have faith or not. 
but um, a lot of the motivations behind someone's faith are going to determine this. Um, so even Christians, uh, I can, tons and tons of Christians, probably the majority of Christians, do not, um, they do not enter into this idea. They, they believe that virtue is true, and they perhaps tell themselves that virtue is pursuable and obtainable, but whenever you apply their faith worldview or their philosophical worldview to its logical conclusion, you end up with an answer that says, no, they don't actually believe that. They don't actually believe that virtue is pursuable, that virtue is um, obtainable. Okay, and I'll get into that in just one second. So going on from here, we're going to keep talking about <clears throat> pursuing virtue. So I'm going to start this portion off of it with a little Bible verse to set your mind towards um, this path, the pursuit of virtue. And you're going to understand exactly whenever I talk, I start describing how worldviews can contradict this, you'll start understanding even Christian worldviews, by the way, uh, there's huge implications in some Christian worldviews that essentially says that virtue is real, but you can't ever get it. And so um, I'm going to read you some a little bit of scripture, and um, you'll understand where I'm going with this once you start to hear it. Okay, so this is coming from the book of the, the second uh, letter of Peter, so second Peter, and it's chapter one, and it's coming from verses, let's see, um, it's verses five and we're going through, um, it looks like 12, I want to say. So verses five through 12, uh, I'm going to start with three because give, give it a little bit of context. So he starts off the first portion of the chapter. It's the greeting and then getting down to three, it's called growth in the faith. And so with with uh, verse three, we see his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being useless and or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly supplied to you. So the reason I brought up contradicting the, the topic of contradicting um, Christian worldviews is because they do exist. And there, there are um, Christian worldviews that will say virtue exists, but you can't ever get, get it. And so I'm going to go into one I know for a fact there's probably some of my listeners who uh, fall into this Christian worldview. 
So um, I ask if you do fall into this Christian worldview, you have, um, you, have, <laughs> you have some charity, right? You don't try to misrepresent me and what I'm trying to say. Um, understand that I'm not attacking you personally. I'm attacking, well, I'm not even attacking. I'm just disagreeing with the worldview. And um, I'm trying to show you that there's some better, better options to it. So have a little grace, have a little charity. Um, don't misrepresent me if you're going to quote me. At least have the grace to say what I am saying without trying to misrepresent me. So <coughs> I'm going to talk about Calvinism right? And so I'm a traditionalist. I'm a Christian traditionalist. I read the entirety of verses, um, the entirety, this verse in its scriptural context. So that's how I arrive at my... Virgil. Sorry about that. My dog just flipped his crap because uh, a delivery guy came delivering some, actually some ammo. So <laughs> he, he, my dog uh, just went nuts. Anyways, so as I was saying, I am a traditionalist when it comes to scripture. And that's often called like something like a provisionist these days. But a traditionalist is someone who looks at the whole context of scripture um, uh, so the context within scripture, so I don't, I, I try my hardest, it's really easy to do this, but it's, I try my hardest not to, what's it called, quote mine, or uh, proof scripting, proof versing, so that's when you go and you take singular verses and try to formulate opinions based on singular verses in the Bible. Um, I try not to do that because, well, it's, it's, it's not biblical to do that, it's, like literally you're trying to find support for your opinion by pulling out verses from the Bible. And, um, so it's not a biblical look at, uh, um, at scriptural research. And, uh, I also try to use historical context to get an understanding of what scripture is saying. So basically a little rundown is that if you're going to take scripture as a look of infallibility, then you must see it as, um, you must see it entirely in its context, use it entirely in its context, uh, as its interpretation, because if you're only taking small pieces and looking at it within your own context, within your own opinions, your own worldview, then your the infallibility of scripture, meaning you believe that God divinely inspired scripture, uh, the infallibility of scripture is in the message of scripture. It's not necessarily, you know, it's, <laughs> there's, there's many translations. It's not necessarily the words that are infallible. So if you were to just take sentences, a few sentences, those words themselves, those English, those pieces of ink on paper is not what's infallible. The message behind it is what's infallible. And you lose the message whenever you remove it from its context. So you can't remove it from its context. You hear Calvinists, um, and I, again, I'm not trying to attack any particular Calvinist. I, it's better for me to say uh, there's notable 
uh, Calvinist speakers who say this. Not all Calvinists say this. And also I ought to say there's many, many different brands of Calvinists and re- Reformed theologians, uh, Reformed theology. So um, I'm talking about the hardline Calvinism. Like I specifically mean exactly what Calvin said. And I can even read a quote here in a moment um, from Calvin to give you an exact uh, an exact uh, understanding of why it has some contradictions it, with this pursuing virtue, obtaining virtue, so uh, identifying virtue. All it, it, why it would contradict these sorts of things, and so, so you know, I'm not trying to straw man. I am specifically criticizing the idea, and not not necessarily the people who might look look at some of its tenets with credibility. Uh, I'm not. I'm not going after the people. I'm talking about specifically the theology and theologians who, um, who their entire career is based on the theology. So, part and parcel, I'm going to go. I'm going to speak against those guys. Um, but you, as a individual, you know, as a normal person, I'm not criticizing you as a person. I'm just going after the idea. So John Piper, he's a notable Calvinist uh, theologian, notable. Uh, Calvinist uh, pastor, he himself said that, and this is true, he said that um, there are many uh, sentences in the Bible that support Calvinism. And he said this in his his sermon, um, or maybe it was a podcast, where he talks about C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was talking about um, the whole Armenian versus Calvinism debate, which is Armenian Armenianism is like a reactionary stance against Calvinism. Um, and he, he says, C.S. Lewis says that the whole debate between the two is pointless because it gives a, a view of God that is restricted by time. And whenever I describe what Calvinism here, like specifically, is in a moment, that you'll understand what I'm talking about. Um, but he said that uh, Calvinism and Arminianism, both these two sides of the debate, restrict God and their view of time. And so he was just going to stay out of the debate entirely and focus more on evangelism. Well, uh, John Piper basically said, um, well, as a Christian, you can't ignore the many sentences in the Bible that support the Calvinist worldview. And John Piper is correct in saying that there are many sentences in the Bible that support the Calvinist worldview. Whenever you remove them from their proper context, they do. You can also remove sentences from the Bible, you know, remove them from their proper context to support slavery. You can remove passages from the Bible from their specific context to support rape or slaughter, genocide. So there's obviously some issues here. Now, you look at the overall message of the Bible, God creating and saving um, those he created with uh, his divine image for eternal life and love with him. That's, uh, you know, obviously individual sentences from the Bible that support genocide or slavery aren't going to mesh with the overall message so you have to lay everything in its in its proper context so just saying that sentences of the bible support this it that means nothing you can effect you can effectively find sentences in the bible to mean many many things 
so you have to set it into its proper context. So without a further ado, I'm going to explain um, what Calvinism is and uh, why it would not necessarily jeopardize the virtue, the pursuit of virtue, um, but it would certainly seem to imply that you cannot, There, it might exist, but you of your own efforts cannot pursue it. So I have this um, this quote here. And so it's a very long quote. I'm going to go down close to the bottom of it. So John, this is from John Calvin, his writings of called Institutes of Christian Religion, Book 3, Chapter 23, uh, Paragraph 6. And so he says, If God merely foresaw human events and did not also arrange and dispose of them at his pleasure, there might be room for agitating the question how far his foreknowledge amounts to necessity. But since he foresees things which are to happen simply because he has decreed that these are also to happen, or that these are so to happen, it is vain to debate about uh, prescience or prescience. Pre- so we, we talk about conscience. This is prescience. Um, while it is clear that all events take place by his sovereign appointment. So what, what does that mean? This is some pretty intense, uh, you know, big boy theology debate sort of stuff. So John Calvin is saying he's talking about God's omnipotence, which means God conceptually, excuse me, God conceptually is a being who knows all things in the universe and outside of the universe. Anything that could ever be, he knows it. That's what omnipotent means. So he's talking about God's omnipotence. And so he's, it's not, he's saying, if God merely foresaw human events, he's basically saying, um, it's not necessarily true that God just foresees all human events. Um, as he goes on to say later, but since he, uh, I already read it, it's, I'm just trying to look back through. Yeah, it is vain to debate about uh, prescience, that, that word I was having a little trouble with. I was talking about we have conscience, he has prescience. Uh, while it is clear that all events take place by a sovereign appointment. So it's basically what he's saying is it's silly to argue that uh, necessarily about God's omnipotence, about him knowing all things and how all events will take place. It's silly to argue that because he thinks that all events um, that could ever happen, that will ever happen, a Calvinistic way of saying is that all things that come to pass are decreed by his will. So what does that mean? That, you know, that's higher level theology. What does that mean? So that means that God doesn't just know all things. He causes all things. So um, he knows what is going to happen because he's made it so. He makes it so. <clears throat> so now you, you might say like, well, that's he's sovereign, right? We just got a, got a view of in John Calvin's quote about sovereignty. Um, doesn't that mean he's sovereign? He rules over everything. Um, doesn't that mean that God causes everything? Um, and if you take that view, that's basically the Calvinistic argument, right? Is the, this, this view of sovereignty that God meticulously controls everything, which th- many of them will argue that's exactly what it means. But in reality, and even, um, some notable Calvinistic scholars have realized this and even talked about this. The, um, sovereignty is, is not the ability to, to control all, all things. It's 
the right to rule, not the ability to rule. So, for example, a king in his sovereignty rules over a kingdom. That doesn't mean every event takes place by his hand. It just means he has the right to do so. But why is this important? Why is this this Calvinistic worldview, why is it notable to talk about this? Well, according to the Calvinistic worldview, um, the interpretation of sovereignty, obviously there, there's these th- two things called election and, um, gosh, I hope I get this word right, reprobation. So election, and you heard it in the second Peter chapter one verse that I read earlier about um, pursuing those virtuous, uh, those virtuous adjectives, those virtuous uh, characteristics of a Christian. And if you if you don't pursue those things, then you're lazy and you're blind and you've forgotten uh, how your sins were washed away and that you're supposed to do that to confirm your election. So the election and reprobation. So Calvinists believe that election has to do with salvation. So, gosh, what does this mean? Very complicated stuff. So, especially if, you, if you're not a Christian, this might be really hard to wrap your, your mind around. So they believe Calvinist, Calvinism holds true that election is the same thing as salvation. And therefore, God elects people to salvation. Calvinism, this this theory is called, um, okay, it's, it is called double predestination. Sorry, I was trying to remember exactly what it's called. So there's single and double predestination, but Calvinism specifically uh, delves into double predestination, especially the, the hardline Calvinism that, like, that holds true to specifically to um, what John Calvin says. So John Calvin, um, he would he, he, some some Calvinism, some more modern modern versions of Calvinism will say no, he he just elects to salvation, but not to reprobation. John Calvin said, "That's silly. Reprobation and election are two of the same. Election cannot be there if reprobation is not there. So what is repro- rep- reprobation? So election is God has." predetermined who gets saved, who gets brought up to heaven, who is, who receives salvation. Um, reparation means that God also chooses who goes to hell, who gets eternal tor- torment. And basically, according to what John Calvin said is it's not, it's, it's not, uh, enough. It's not, it's silly to argue that God just chooses to do things because he could see beforehand. So some people will say, well, God can look into the future and see that these people were going to do good or they were going to do bad. And then he can elect or reprobate those to either go to heaven or go to hell. Well, John Calvin would say, um, it's, it's folly or it's vain to argue. Um, what was it? prescience, pres- prescience, or whichever it was that, uh, however you pronounce that, it's it's vain to argue whether God just knows beforehand or not, because it's not just that he knows beforehand. It's that God specifically determines. In other words, God um, chooses you for salvation or hell, and he makes you good or bad. Not of there, There's no reason to it, no rhyme or reason other than God's own will. He makes you bad. He makes you good. He chooses you for heaven, or he get, he chooses you for hell. No matter what, there's no um, there's you know there's no room for uh, any sort of 
uh, free will. There's, I mean, there's the Calvinistic view of free will is, uh, they call it uh, compatibilism. And this, this compatibilism means that you have wants and desires that control what your free will is. And so technically, whether you sin, in other words, whether you do evil or whether you do right or not, is determined by your wants and desires. And so you do have free will, but technically, according to compatibilism, um, your wants and desires are also ultimately controlled by God because God controls your nature because it's a, pre- a predeterministic worldview. So in other words, compatibilism also believes that God makes you either good or evil. So the reason that Calvinism holds to this view is that they want to give God all the glory for salvation. So those who are saved, they want to say God did everything for it, basically. God chose you since before time was even a thing. Um, God shows you and he saves you before you were ever even able to have faith. Uh, he, uh, you know, he started in you. He, he started this, what they would call, what Calvinism calls um, regeneration. And so you regenerate in the Calvinistic worldview. You regenerate before you have faith. So God works in your heart and turns your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh and um, causes you to have faith in him. And then from that faith, you are saved uh, through Jesus Christ. And then you go to heaven. But God ultimately first chose you um, to have faith. And so that he and then other people he chooses to send to hell. He chooses them to never have faith. So, obviously, you're probably seeing by now how this is problematic. First off, um, uh, problematic, I mean, by pursuing virtue. Because ultimately, there is no pursuing virtue if this worldview is true. Um, And ironically, Calvinism is um, untenable as a lifestyle. So in other words, if you try to act out these teachings of Calvinism, you'll literally do nothing in your life. And what I mean is like, if you say that there is no free will or that God ultimately has determined your free will, that you're going to either do good or do bad, then what is the reason to do any better than you are now? Why should you choose to not do bad? If God chose for you to do bad, then why should you do better? Does that make sense? I, I hope I, I hope that makes sense. So if you were to intentionally shut off your free will in your everyday life, you end up doing nothing. So this – sorry, my dog's playing. Um, if you were to shut off the free will, it, it doesn't – you know, what are you going to do? So um, Calvinism, if you were to act it out in a personal philosophy – it's it's impractical you it requires you to act as if you have free will although it itself rejects the idea of you having free will it makes no sense it's the same reason that um the so for example uh the the argument is uh for for christians a lot many christians will look at calvinists and say you believe that god ultimately chooses whomever um Whomever is to come to him, he he predetermines who will become Christian. Yet many Calvinists obviously have, or many Calvinist churches have um, outreach programs. Well, they'll they'll go out and they'll try to convert. Why? 
why is that? And they'll say, well, because God commanded you to do it. But they go out and they try to teach people about Christ. And many of them do incredible, wonderful evangelical works. And I'm very, I'm very proud of my, my Christian brothers who happen to be Calvinists that do that. But they're doing it for the wrong reason. Um, not to say that God's command command to do that is wrong, but it it's it doesn't make sense. It it contradicts their view of of Calvinism. Contra- contradicts the ultimate theology of why you're why God commands you to do that. It's not just in, it's not enough to just say God commands you to do that because God commands you to do things for reason for good reason. So uh, so why is this? this theology, this Calvinistic theology, not true. I'm going to read you some verses and put it into context, what they're saying. So, first off, I'm going to go to Jeremiah chapter 32, and we're going to go to verse 35. So, this is um, when Israel and Judah have uh, started to turn away from God in the history of the Old Testament, and they're going to go start worshiping uh, false idols, the the idols of the Canaanites and the Philistines. So verse 35 starts off with, They have built the high places of Baal in the valley of Hinnom to make their sons and daughters pass through the fire of, to Moloch, something I had not commanded them. I had never, It had never entered into my thought that they should do this detestable act causing Judah to sin. Okay, so it's this this sin that they're committing has never entered into God's thoughts that they should do that. Uh, it, it, God never chose for them to do that. So obviously you add a little bit of context to their old interpretations, the, Cal- the Calvinistic interpretations, and at least one half of what they say is wrong there. So they, they would say that God ultimately chooses uh, the reprobate, the non-elect, to um, sin for his own glorification. Well, that can't be the case because here we have an instance of people sinning, and it specifically says that God cho- did not, never, would never enter into his mind for them to do that. Okay, and so we're going to continue on now to... Um, the book of Romans. So, a huge portion of the uh, a huge portion of the Calvinistic worldview is they operate on this this system called tulip, and so it's. Um, gosh, I want to get this right, so I'm going to look it up real quick. Um, it is an a an abbreviation for their view of the nature of God, the nature of salvation. And the nature of the state of man. So I'm going to pull up Tulip. Uh, and I, I hope this this it portrays them accurately. Because I do not want to um, portray them inaccurately. I want to give them charity. So Tulip is total depravity. Unconditional election. Limited atonement. Irresistible grace. And perseverance of the saints. So total depravity means humans are always wrong they're always unrighteous uh nothing that they can do is is good out of our own nature um unconditional election means that when god chooses you you can 
uh, that when, whenever God chooses you to become saved, that he did it before the, uh, before the beginning of the earth, before the beginning of time, he chose you, uh, to become saved. And, uh, there's, there's nothing that could ever change that limited atonement means that the, uh, the atoning for sins by Christ's death on the cross is limited. It's specifically what it means. It, it does not, you know, it doesn't, it's not universal. Basically, it's not, it got, Christ did not defeat sin and death. He defeated it only for a select few. Um, in other words, the good news of the gospel is not actually good news. It's, it's only good news for some people. It's not actually good news for all people. Irresistible grace. It means that whenever God, um, God begins working grace in your life to change your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It basically means that uh, that y- you will turn to uh, that grace. You will become a Christian no matter what, right? So there's nothing the, there's nothing that you can do to resist that. And then perseverance of the saints it's pretty self-explanatory. Um, it talks about the saints, those who have saved, been saved. You get the idea. Perseverance. Um, there, there might be a little bit on that last one. I'm not entirely, um, I am not entirely familiar with it. I have, I have a very rudimentary understanding of it. So since I don't, um, I will allow the Calvinists, uh, the Calvinist interpretation to self-represent on that. You can look it up for yourself. I do not want to misrepresent them. So I'm not going to speak on something that I don't know entirely, but the other four, I, um, have a pretty good functional understanding of what they they what these uh these tenets of their 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 philosophy means so um, i'm going to start with total depravity so the first t on the tulip and so that's really the one i want to address because that one total depravity it's going to impact this virtue conversation on a fundamental level okay so they're, where they're drawing that from is originally from a psalm in the Bible, and uh, it's said again later in the epistle of the Ro- of Roman Romans. Uh, it's Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, basically, the backstory of the letter to the Romans is that after uh, a lot of con- conversion events in the New Testament occurred, the Gentile Christians of the Roman church were being persecuted by the Jewish Christians of the uh, Roman church. And so Paul was writing to the church of Rome, the Christian church of Rome, to speak on behalf of the Gentile Christians. Uh, Paul himself was a, uh, originally he was of the Pharisee class, which was a Jewish class. So everybody had thought that he was going to side with the Jews. Turns out he was basically saying, no, um, the Gentiles in fact, were the ones that were going to be chosen ultimately by God, although the the Jews were the originally elected, um, the elected nation to bring uh, God's nation to the earth. He would pass it on to the Gentiles because the Gentiles were uh, grafted in to God's uh, nation by faith through the death of Jesus Christ. And that the Jews had basically lost their righteousness because they had attempted to remain um, God's chosen nation out of works by the law and not by faith in Jesus Christ. And so, what they're they're pulling Calvinism's pulling this total depravity from is uh, 
Romans three eleven through 18. So it says, There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And so there's, it goes on more. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So if you take that that passage out without any context, you get the idea of total depravity. However, Paul was not saying that. He was not quoting that psalm to represent total depravity. He was... Uh, he was uh, quoting that psalm in order to talk about uh, the conflict between faith and works of the law. So basically, as I was talking about earlier, the Jews believed that the promise of God's fulfillment to the, uh, to the nation of Israel, basically to bring his kingdom to earth, was by their commitment to the law. And um, Paul points out that the law is actually, um, basically the law is the, the, the point of the Levitical law, the Mosaic law, um, the laws of the Old Testament were not salvation purposes. Uh, the law doesn't save you. It only points out the fact that you are sinning. So, um, basically as long as you stay in the law, um, then you are going to, well, if you stay in the law, then you're going to die. Basically this, the sin, you're just going to fall into sin. And so that portion that I just read to you was his description of people who try to stay in the law. Right afterwards, it said, it talks about God's righteousness through faith. But now apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed at, uh, attested by the law and the prophets, that is, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all who have sinned and fall, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate the righteousness because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous to one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So the key being at the end of there, so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. In Jesus. Um, and then literally right after that, it's there's chapter four. The heading is Abraham justi- justified by faith, and it talks about um, <laughs> it, it talks about how David and Abraham and uh, other leaders, uh, you know, Jewish leaders of the t- uh, of the ancient era, were justified not by the law but through faith. Abraham, um, God elected the Israelite nation for service that's actually you know Calvinism holds that election is about salvation whereas the truth about election originally in the Old Testament was that uh, election is for service to bring God's kingdom to the earth and then it's fulfilled God Christ Jesus the chosen one is the ultimate election 
to bring God's kingdom to earth. And we are grafted in through faith. So all who have faith in Jesus Christ are elect. <laughs> it's not like, it's not that God chose you at the begin, beginning before, before the world was created, before, before time. He, di- he did not choose you to be saved into heaven. He chose you, um, he chose you before the earth, before the, um, before the creation of the earth, before the beginning of time, he chose you to be saved by Christ because Christ died for all. So through faith, you are grafted into election. So it's a, every, every person is saved by the, by the, by the death of Christ from sin, but Faith is um, it's a it's a consequence of your choice. So, essentially, the the election is only fulfilled in you through faith, right? And so, so it's 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 not that certain people are made into believers by God. That's not true. It's that. I want to say this right. I want to. I want to say this right so that Calvinists don't say so because I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm attacking people and saying claiming that they believe in something that they don't actually believe. So I want to. I want to say this right. It's not that you are so depraved that you can't believe, right? Beforehand in Romans, in Romans one, God says that. Um, every man is able to see him. Basically, it's it's his his existence has been revealed to the world um, uh, through just existence, co- common revelation. So basically, here I'm trying to look for the verse so I can give better explanation as to what I'm saying. Um, for God's wrath is revealed. This is uh, Romans chapter one, verse eighteen. God, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness uh, and unrighteousness of people who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So basically what this means is God has created everything in a way that reveals his nature as creator. And you and every, every man in this world is able to see that. So um, so basically everybody is able to know that God exists, that God created the world. The issue is is not, not that God chooses some for life, for salvation, and chooses some to never believe and thus have damnation. It's not that. It's that people, by their own wickedness, suppress the truth. They are without excuse. So basically, if it was true that God chose you to be damned, 
you have an excuse. Your excuse to not get to heaven is, well, God just didn't chose me. But that's not the case. You don't have that because God did choose you. He chose you, elected before the beginning of the earth, before the beginning of time, to be grafted in to election, uh, to this to this purpose of bringing his kingdom to earth through faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ being the ultimate chosen, the ultimate elect. So you're grafted in through faith. And in the second chapter of Romans, we see in uh, Romans 2, verse 4 through 11, um, but because your hardness uh, and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. Uh, when God's righteous judgment is revealed, he will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life for those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and indignation to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth, but are, but are obeying unrighteousness, affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Other translations have Gentile. But glory and honor uh, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. There is no favoritism in God. I hope that you understand that. That this 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 view that God creates it doesn't make sense. Whenever you apply context to the whole scripture, it doesn't make sense that God commands you to do good, but He is only willing to give some people the ability to know Him and thus do good, and punishes the rest. It's it's a self defeating argument. This idea of total depravity that <laughs> they take. I'm sorry, not they, that Calvinism affirms doesn't make sense with the context of Scripture. It makes sense whenever you realize that the the verse that that Calvinism uses to support total depravity that I read earlier in Romans, it is referring to the law and that members are made righteous through faith, that makes more sense whenever you use the context of the whole scripture. Calvinism, whenever it's faced with these issues of context in scripture, whenever there are situations in scripture that seem to contradict what Calvinism says, Calvinism and its proponents will usually just say, well, it's a paradox. It's a mystery. In other words, they don't know how to explain it. They're just going to... Um, they're going to appeal to faith to answer this conundrum that they have that the scripture to them, according to their interpretation, seems to contradict itself. There is a legitimate thing called um, mysteries of faith that's like the virgin birth, um, the resurrection, transfiguration, etc. It's not necessarily things in scripture that contradict at all. It's just things that seem to exceed um, human understanding. What they're talking about, what Calvinism is talking about is different. It's, a, it's what seems to them to be a contradiction in Scripture, and so they appeal to faith. The issue is not that Scripture contradicts, it, because it doesn't. If you read Scripture in its true context, it's completely consistent. But Calvinism takes on this view of Scripture that requires it 
in order to support the, the pre-existing opinions of Calvinism, it requires it to contradict. And then once it does contradict, there's the appeal to faith, the appeal to the mystery of faith. Why do I say all this? Because at the end of the day, if you hold true to this view of Calvinism, that God predetermines some uh, to become holy and blameless uh, and thus uh, become faithful and go to heaven, and God predetermines others to be reprobates, uh, to be sinners and to not to believe and ultimately degener- degenerate all the way to hell, <laughs> there's no point in pursuing virtue. There's no point in doing any of these things. Um, virtue in the eyes of Calvinism can exist, but you can never achieve it, right? The only way that you could ever achieve it is if God has predetermined for you to do so. And if he has predetermined for you to do so, then it is effectual. In other words, um, it is by no action of your own that you become virtuous. It is truly... Um, it just happens sporadically, spontaneously in your heart. You become more virtuous and, uh, by the consequence of God making it happen in you. And so there's nothing that you can do. There's no reason for you to pursue virtue. Uh, that's because that's not how it works. There, no human action would be needed to fulfill the Calvinistic view of, um, righteousness of what they call regeneration. So or uh, and sanctification as well. So there's there's no point in pursuing virtue, in pursuing righteousness of your own volition, of your own will. There's no point. That can't be true. You know, because we here again we have in the Bible. I'm going to turn back to what we read just earlier, Second Peter. Um, at the end, therefore, brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. You remember. The election, they would say, Calvinism would say, election, that's talking about salvation. No, that's not. You, if, if you're elect, if you're among the elect, yes, you will be saved, but the two are not, the two are not synonymous. Election being specifically God's original promise, election of Abraham and his descendants to make, a, make on earth a great nation of God. And then Jesus Christ, the ultimate election through death on the cross and resurrection, bringing God's kingdom here to earth. And then the rest of us being grafted in to that kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. um, uh, Being grafted in through faith, that is election. It is not just this filler word that you can use part and parcel with salvation. Do you want to know how I know that? Because if it was true that God chose you at the beginning of the earth to be elect and that there's nothing you can do to ever change that, then why – by, by I'm, meaning, I'm meaning the Calvinistic worldview of elect. I'm not meaning what I just talked about. I mean God chose you at the beginning of the earth, the beginning of time, to be saved into heaven without you doing anything, without you doing – um, any sort of righteous deed or, or uh, coming to faith in Christ, then why would it ever matter whether you, of your own free will, act to confirm your calling and election, as said there in verse 10? 
It doesn't make sense. The Calvinistic interpretation co- contradicts with that. Why would it ever matter whether you do or do not make every effort to confirm your calling? Look at that. Make every effort. It's on you to make every effort. Why would it ever matter to to make every effort to confirm your calling an election if that it was chosen uh, for your salvation at the beginning of earth, at the beginning of time, and there's nothing that could ever change about that, what does it matter? Okay, continuing on. Because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For this, in this way, uh, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord, Savior, and Jesus Christ will be richly supplied to you. And again, a little bit earlier, um, the person who lacks, this is verse 9, the person who lacks these things uh, is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. In other words, there are Christians who will f- who will not do this. There are Christians who won't pursue virtue. Uh, and do you understand? Like there's, <laughs> according to the Calvinistic worldview, if you're saved, you know, you will become, re- you will, first off, their order, what is it? Order salutis, which means the process in which you become a Christian is God works in your heart to change your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Then God, once you're, you have a heart of flesh, he um, chooses you to have faith. He makes you have faith. And then from there, you're saved. And then you're sanctified. Um, and through the sanctification process, you're becoming holy and perfect and blameless. But here we have a perfect example that that's not necessarily the case. Not all Christians will do that. There are some Christians who believe in Christ that attest Christ with their mouth. That uh, the, that per, there are people in that who will lack these things uh, and they will be considered blind and short-sighted and they will have forgotten the cleansing from their past sins. In case you forgot these things that he's talking about from the verse first reading, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Okay, you've got to have these worldviews that don't contradict. If you want to pursue virtue, you have to have a good, consistent view biblical view you have to believe that virtue is real you have to believe that it's pursuable and obtainable right it, that you can't have this worldview that says that virtue does not exist that's not, it's not true you can't have this worldview that says um, that virtue does exist but you may never obtain it especially by any portion of your free will because that's not true either you must pursue virtue it depends on you there is sanctification there is regeneration like in your faith god will um he will push you to be better but a lot of it obviously from this scripture that i just read a lot of it's on you there will be a point where um even if you have faith you might not be pressed to affirm these 
characteristics, these virtues. And if you don't, you're lazy, you're short-sighted, and um, you've forgotten the cleansing of your past sins. There is personal responsibility in this. This is something that you must understand. There's personal responsibility in developing virtue. Okay. Um, Okay, so... This episode is getting really long. (laughs) I may split this up into two segments. I hope that um, my rambling, my little rabbit trail... I do not mean to turn brothers away from Christ. If you're of the Calvinistic Reformed faith, I, th- I think it's wrong. I, but I, you're still a brother. And I want to be sure to say that there are many Calvinists out there that have done wonderful works for God. They've been done wonderful works for the faith. Um, but I don't think it's because of their faith that they've done that. Necessarily, I don't think it's because of the theology necessarily that they hold to that's done that. Because the theology ultimately says that no act of man is ever needed. Um, like for evangelization, there's they don't go out and evangelize to people because they expect to change people's minds to get them to turn to God. Because ultimately Calvinism says that doesn't happen. They do it... For the only reason that God commanded them to, which in and of itself is a great feature. It's a great, like a great virtue. Obedience to God is a great virtue. Um, but ultimately, you have to understand that God isn't this big, needy crybaby in the sky that just commands you to do things and expects you to carry them out. Um, the things he commands you to do, there's legitimate good reason that God commands you to do them. There's wise to his what's and so it doesn't make sense for you to hold to this worldview that says that that god is is this needy um commanding he's chosen everything at the beginning of the the beginning of the world um and the only reason that he's winning over sin is because he's playing both sides of the chessboard it's not because he's actually a better player at chess it's just because he's playing both sides of the chessboard it's not how God is. The God is a incredible, wonderful master creator who loves his creation, every single aspect of his creation. And that's why hell is so tragic is because it's avoidable because every Christ has, you know, atonement is not limited. Christ has died for the salvation of all mankind. And all mankind have the opportunity from God uh, to choose. You know, he like like I read in Romans one, every man has been given the. It, it's been made obvious to man that God exists, and it's through man's own wickedness that man chooses to rebel against God. And it's so tragic because it's avoidable. Hell is tragic because it's avoidable. It does not have to happen. You do not have to choose to reject God. You do not have to choose to reject to pursue virtue. But many will. Um, So it's not that God has chosen people to go to hell. It's that people are actively rebelling against God. And and so hell is coming here to earth. Earth is is a, a battlefield. 
because of this. It's not that God chooses for Earth to get worse and worse. It's this place is a battlefield between God's spirits, God's spirit, God's will, and those who want to legitimize and actualize God's will here on Earth versus um, those who reject God and hate God and want uh, want the rejection of God to reign here on Earth. It's that worldview that I, I mentioned originally where nihilism, you know, it's just, if God's not real, then nothing really matters. It's that battle. Okay, so since this is such a long episode, I'm going to split it up into two. This is part one of uh, developing virtue, pursuing virtue. Um, so I'll get to more of it in this. The The next episode is going to be less about contradicting worldviews and it's going to be more about the practical aspect of how you can implement virtue, pursue virtue, practice virtue in your own life. Okay, guys, uh, <laughs> I know this is kind of a long and disjointed episode. Um, I have actually been recording this in multiple segments because my week has been just crazy. This is actually, um, I recorded the first part of this episode last week and the second part of this episode this week. And I had to listen, re-listen to what I had already said just so that I could try to pick up where I left off. So I really hope, um, I really hope it's informative um, I hope it encourages you, to, encourages you to pursue virtue and think about the worldviews that might be in conflict with uh, your pursuit of virtue. And um, I hope you, if you have any questions, feel free to message me on Instagram or message me on my, my Telegram account. I'll list the uh, links to both in the show notes. Thank you guys for listen to, listening to me. I really appreciate it. I feel like I have some perspectives that would help people. I've been told that about before I got banned on Instagram that um, some of the things I have to say, I've, I'm just thankfully I've had experiences throughout my life that have um, shaped different perspectives and allowed me to convey them to numerous people. You know, I've had, I've had perspectives in the past that were absolute crap. And... Um, I probably still have perspectives now that people would think that are absolute crap. Uh, some people might listen to this entire episode and think that guy's perspective is absolute crap. Um, it's a development, but uh, I believe that I have certain perspectives that would help. I've done a lot of study. I've done a lot of living. Um, and I hope to bring this full circle next episode. So thank you guys. I appreciate you tuning in to listen. Um, check out my Instagram page, Marauders Camp of the Beyond, for updates uh, on coming episodes and more posts, uh, gun-related posts, freedom-related posts, um, virtue and other philosophy-related posts. I hope you guys have a great uh, rest of the week or weekend, whichever it is. I'm finishing this up on a Sunday night, so um, praise be God. Uh, I hope you guys have a wonderful and blessed week. Thanks, guys. Bye.